Art of the Cut is brought to you by Evercast. Evercast is the first real-time collaboration platform built for creatives by creatives with video conferencing and HD live streaming in one web-based platform. Stay tuned for a special offer later in the show. Art of the Cut is also brought to you by Frame.io, a leading collaboration platform for filmmakers. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hullfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today our guest is Nels Bangerter, who is just nominated for an Ace Eddie for Best Edited Documentary for the film Dick Johnson is Dead. Nels already won the International Documentary Association and Cinema Eyes Honors Awards for his work on this film. Previously, Nels cut director Kristen Johnson's other award-winning documentary, Camera Person, as well as the documentaries Let the Fire Burn and You See Me, among others. How's it going? Nice to meet you. Thanks for getting in touch. Yeah, nice to meet you too. I've been watching it on and off. I have not had a chance to get the entire thing in in one sitting, so I finished it this morning and just had tears streaming down my face. I posted on Facebook, I'm like, I don't know if any of my friends are documentary people, but even if you hate documentaries, you have got to watch this movie. It is so good in so many ways. Well, thank you. That's really nice. We're fans of documentary ourselves, but this is the biggest fictional crossover that Kirsten and I have done before. And I think it definitely aims to be something beyond a traditional documentary. Yeah, absolutely. I think... It succeeds at that. The questions that I have are not in any particular order. One of the first ones is just about structure. So for those who haven't seen the film, there are various things that we come back to. The film, I think it's pretty obvious if you read even the smallest synopsis on the film, is that it's a daughter with her father who is dying, losing his memory, and she kills him in numerous humorous ways. So we're always going to these stunts you're going to this heaven, these kind of heaven scenes. How was the movie structured? How did you decide, oh, I think it's time for another stunt? Because you could have done them all in a row or you could have spaced them out differently than you did. They didn't have to go in specific places. So talk to me about structure. Yeah, so we were editing and shooting at the same time on this film. So we were developing the way that the film worked as the footage was coming in. And originally the way the project was pitched and funded was with the idea that Dick would die at the end of every scene. And that was really exciting. It was high concept and we started off that way, but pretty quickly real life events took over and it became the situation where Kirsten's dad, Dick Johnson, his dementia was getting too serious for him to be able to really reliably execute the stunts. And so we couldn't have as many stunts as we wanted. And there was a period when we were engineering some of them with visual effects, but we realized pretty quickly that we could go a different direction with the budget that we had for the stunts. And we started conceiving of and filming the heaven sequences and those provided this sort of third element you you have the reality of the film you have the stunts and then you have this heaven timeline in a way that we could then cut between all three of those to keep the energy moving through the film yeah i totally got that sense of energy and that was one of the questions that i had is what's the value of switching between them and every time you jump to a new one you're 
all of a sudden you're like, oh, you perk up. Yeah, yeah. With a lot of films, I like to try to stay half a step in front of the audience. And I think one way to do that is to jump forward in time. And the audience, when they're with you, really is super capable of filling in the gaps. There's almost nothing that you can't jump forward that the audience can't quickly come up with an explanation for in their mind. And you can sell it as long as you have them on your side. And yeah, jumping between timelines is a classic example of that, a way to skip over the parts of life. You know, when you're working with a documentary, it's real life. So you're skipping over the parts of life that aren't that interesting and you can get to the next really golden moment. Yeah, absolutely. And another structure that I thought was really interesting was the film does a typical book ending that a lot of movies do. It starts with the funeral, the fake funeral, and ends with the fake funeral or ends with the funeral. Yeah, yeah. Dick Johnson's funeral was the first scene that was really shot for the movie. For a lot of the edit, we had it entirely in the beginning. It was this crazy way to launch into the film, and we were actually conceiving of either a second funeral at the end that we would play as a real funeral or actually the way that Kirsten Johnson, the filmmaker, had conceived it, we had thought maybe we would be filming until the, the process could be drawn out until Dick died. Now, he's still alive to this day, spoiler alert. So that could have taken years and years. But we realized that this funeral that had been shot, we just had this amazing performance from one of Dick's best friends oh. who was truly that i was in tears i was just yeah sobbing. he's so good and in a way it is a performance i mean dick jokes during the movie that ray is his name ray believes that the funeral's the real thing that he's lost <laughs> touch with reality for a moment and that's sort of the case but ray had told us earlier on and it's in the film not completely clearly but he's saying that he finds the undertaking of the film to be a really valuable thing and that he wants to do his best to make it amazing and i've always thought of that performance from him as him deciding to be in the moment and choosing to make the funeral real and he just knocks it out well then the guy deserves an oscar then seriously he's really he good. deserves an oscar for that performance <laughs> yeah he's brilliant and then we had a great camera operator catch him at the end as he went over to the side of the chapel and he's sobbing during this climactic moment for dick who mm -hmm. i don't want yeah. to don't, don't, it, don't give it away don't give but it away it's great it's great yeah. it plays beautifully and so when we eventually figured out how the movie was going to end we knew that it could end as well as beginning there yeah it's really powerful these are real documentary things that I almost want to, to do this like a class in documentary because that's how good I think this film is. I've edited Verite before. Let's talk about how long a Verite scene could be or should be because uh, you've got scenes like his memory test. So at one point he goes to a doctor and she's trying to ascertain whether he's lost more of his memory or is maintaining. That could have probably played or maybe you did an original edit that's twice as long or five times as long. How do you create a, a verite scene in editing? That's such a hard question <laughs> to answer because I think it comes with experience and it comes with feel and it changes with the way the edit's working. Sometimes your edit is faster paced and a slow verite scene will feel like it drags. And other times in almost the exact same situation, a slow verite scene provides this really deep moment of introspection. There's a scene where Dick Johnson is eating soup, it's this departure and it's very calm, very quiet, and really one of my favorite scenes. 
but I'm always looking for whatever the moment is that makes something really amazing. But I don't like to cut it too close to the bone. The classic saying with editing is get into the scene as late as you can and get out as early as you can. And I think I keep that in the back of my mind, but I push against it a little bit. I think that there's a value to beginning a scene somewhere comprehensible, maybe beginning it late-ish is good. But I like there to be a, a moment in the middle where the audience gets to be there to exist and to think and in a way to do their own work in their mind on what's going on. Mm -hmm. And then when you have a strong ending to the scene, then whatever they've come up with, whatever the audience has come up with that they think the scene is about can be in some sense validated by a strong ending. It can be a joke or it can be just a, an emotional point or a, it can be a death and it can kind of knock home this just freedom and trust that we like to give to them. Can you remember with any of those, you know, it's been a while since you probably edited this, but can you remember like with the memory scene or with the soup scene or with packing up his house or his office, which are other verite scenes, how much footage you would have had? How long could that have been if you just decided to make a documentary about just that one moment? Yeah, oh, the, I think the soup scene, I may have had a, oh, I can't remember exactly how long. I may have had a 12 minute cut of that scene alone. And it's maybe what, two minutes now? I think it's, yeah, maybe two, two, two or three, three minutes. Yeah. Um, and there were a lot of extra little gags in there. And there was a form, maybe in a sense, a three act structure, beginning of the conversation, the middle of the conversation. But I do remember when I first showed it to the director, we both loved it. It was really just wonderful. But we thought, is anybody else going to like this scene at all? To tell the audience, it's a scene of an old man eating very slowly a <laughs> bowl of tomato soup. And then a bowl of ice cream. <laughs> yeah, and then a bowl of ice cream. And he's just calmly having a conversation with his daughter, the director. And it's very intimate and it's very real. And it just played in a way that was so refreshing to us. Then it was a matter of trying to see if we could work that in. And of course, I think every time I go through a timeline, I'm watching each scene and sometimes it's shaving down a second or two. Often it's not shaving down a second or two, or sometimes it's reordering a line or two, or maybe now and then cut out 45 seconds from something. But it's kind of on many passes that it slowly evolves from what I do as a first cut. I do try to avoid the pitfall of making too long of a first edit. A lot of doc editors, a lot of editors in general build an assembly cut. And I try to skip that part and go as soon as I can towards first a rough cut. It's something that's watchable as a movie. So... Yeah, that's my particular process. With that said, you cut that scene 80% too long. Eventually, and, you know, who knows if that's right, but... Yeah, maybe, I can't remember, but yeah, it certainly put too much in. And who knows, we may have loved it that way. It's funny, the longer I edit, the less confident I become in any hard choice <laughs> that we make. I believe in making strong choices is important, and I think a strong choice can go either direction, in a yeah. way. You know, leave something in a moment that lets the audience really absorb it, or cut it to the quick and make it really high impact. Those are both great. The soup scenes felt the right length. I, I don't know. I can't know because I don't know how good it was at 12 minutes. 
Well, and who can ever judge editing unless you've seen the dailies? This right. is my puzzle as well. Like, how do we know what's good? Even having seen the dailies, it's a hard call. Yeah, totally true. Another obsession of mine is pre-lapping, and the memory scene is one where you pre-lapped. I can't remember what was before it, but you started to hear the voice of the therapist or the doctor in the previous scene. What's the value of a pre-lap? You didn't do it every single scene. There's at least two. Yeah, I feel like I don't usually do it, and I don't remember it there. But in that scene, towards the end of the scene, the director's voiceover comes in. And this is actually a joke, an editing joke happens there. Yeah. That's a prelap, essentially. Her voiceover comes in, in the way voiceover does. The audio from the set dips down, and she starts talking about her reflections on what her dad was doing in that moment. And then we cut to the scene where Kirsten is recording the voiceover in her own closet, which is where she did record the voiceover. And that is this goofy little thing that a meta joke about where documentary voiceover is recorded. <laughs> then it, it ends up paying off, too. It's a setup for the, end. the very last scene in the film as well. And she really records all the voiceover for this movie on her iPhone? Yes, she did. <laughs> yeah, we were cutting temp voiceover that was recorded on her iPhone for sure. And I've done a little more of that since then. And it really can be pretty good. Your sound person is annoyed, but they can't quite put their finger on what's actually wrong with it. But actually, in those scenes, there was another shotgun mic under the camera that was recording her as well. I don't know what was actually used in the mix. Probably the shotgun. Yeah. I wanted to talk about the use of jump cuts. He's just riding in a car. He's just moved to New York City. He's sung Popeye the Sailor Man. And then there's some dialogue, but it's literally just shot after shot of him jump cutting, not even looking out the window, almost looking into himself. Yeah, it's this amazing close-up on Dick as he's a passenger in a minivan and he's freshly arrived to New York to live with his daughter and he just looks lost. And it was beautiful footage of him looking out the window and riding. And yeah, it's jump cut several times. To me, it's barely even a jump cut. It's this energy that you get from an edit. In essence, you're saying this took a long time, right? Like he was doing this for a long time. The excisions in the cut are pointing towards that. So it's a valuable technique for expanding the depth of a scene, but I use it all the time. I'll, I'll cut out a word or two in a conversation. And if the cut feels right, I don't cover it anymore. I think that audiences are really astute about it. It can sometimes be energizing in a way. It's something that I feel like if you don't have the perfect cutaway, a fake cutaway looks worse. It detracts more from the moment than simply jump cutting. Yeah, I wouldn't have wanted to cut to him, cut to what he's looking at out the window, cut to a scenery shot cut to her driving the car, cut back to him. It was very compelling just to watch his face. It seemed like specific moments where he was thinking or, like you said, lost almost. Yeah, the light was changing over his face. You could see the backgrounds behind him going by, but you could see his eyes so clearly and almost watering. It was a beautiful moment. Yeah, I thought so too. And the other jump cut that I wanted to talk to you about, because I think we're about the same age, and uh, you might be a little younger than me. And jump cutting, obviously, other than documentaries, you try to avoid it. A while ago, you would try to avoid it, I feel. And one of the other places where I saw the jump cut is there's an interview where she's just talking to him about regrets. 
and whether he had a fantasy of what his life would be like in his older years. Mm-hmm. And she's asking him questions and then he's answering and then it would cut to another question and another answer without cutaways. What's the value? Why not cut to a cup of tea or a wide shot of the two of them sitting there or some little bit of detail in the room? Two reasons. And I think the main one that I've learned from cutting Kirsten's footage and others is that, and Walter Murch says this too, the emotional edit is the most important cut. You have to cut for an emotional reason. You can strain yourself to imagine what would be better than cutting again to To this person's face in an intense, beautiful interview. Sometimes you could get a little cheesy with it. Well, you think of a 60 minutes edit, not that a 60 minutes is poorly edited, but they would cut to someone's hands fidgeting in their lap or something. Right. Yeah. The hand shot is one that shooters, inexperienced shooters, especially always shoot and editors rarely use, I feel (laughs) like. Since one of the first docs that I cut called Let the Fire Burn, which is just full of reaction shots. I just became a real, not in a self-flattering way, but a connoisseur of reaction shots. Not that I'm so good at them, but I really want them to count. I want them to mean something. Mm -hmm. And so if you're cutting away to a reaction or a B-roll or whatever, it has to contribute or it's better not to cut away at all. I would much rather simply jump cut than do something that detracts in the least. Yeah, I always think of that broadcast news thing where the guy says, wait, cut to me. I think I can get a tear. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did a documentary actually once where we were editing away and the person goes, we haven't seen me in a while. The interviewer. I'm like, yeah, and? <laughs> yeah. Oh, and so this is the other thing I was going to say is that Kirsten Johnson, the director and shooter, she's a cinematographer by trade. And she shot a huge portion of this movie. She rarely shoots cutaways. And when I first was editing her stuff, before we even met, actually, this was uh, several projects ago, I I cut a film that she shot. And I was frustrated. I was like, oh, couldn't you just give me the cutaway here? (laughs) Right. And of course, editors are always like swearing under their breath at the shooters. But we talked about it later. And she means not to. And she challenges the film to not do the classic establishing shot and then come in and then cut away to somebody's hands or clock on the wall or something. And she really shoots with a ton of emotion and engagement and doesn't let the kind of nuts and bolts get in the way of that. And I think it's really brilliant the way she does that. Yeah, I absolutely love that. So we talked about the heaven scene and the death scene. So they obviously weren't scripted. So the heaven scenes did you like have a thing on the wall? Was there a script? Did you just decide now's a correct time to go to this particular heaven scene? Before we shot the heaven scenes, we had the idea for them and we started slugging them in. When Dick would die in the scene, I'd put in a title card. It looked like the Windows 95 background with the green <laughs> hill and the blue sky. And I think I put some After Effects, some spinning bunnies and a sunshine, which gave us a sense of what we were doing. It was going to be a goofy, beautiful, sentimental heaven. And so we slotted those in. Yeah. For those who haven't seen the movie, this is not a heaven of puffy clouds and angels. Yeah. And I can talk in a second about why we made some of the decisions the way we shot it, but we would slug it in places. And we really felt like it could work as long as it was good. As long as we could shoot something that was amazing there, we thought, oh, this is going to be really fun and it's surprising and turning it to 11 in a way. We've conceived a documentary where the main character dies repeatedly. What could be 
more than that. Let's send him to heaven. So that was really fun. But that was at the point in the film where we were already having a tough time getting Dick to be able to perform the stunts because of his dementia. I mean, he can be so loving and brilliant and he's a great listener. He's really an amazing dad and he's that way all the time. But as far as hitting a mark or doing the exact thing you need to do at the right time, that was really hard for him with his dementia. So what we figured out is that if we shot the heaven footage at a thousand frames per second and threw confetti around in the background it would have this gorgeous strange heavenly look but in a way more importantly it would allow us to use any fraction of a second that dick was performing to our advantage so if there was a scene that something wonderful happens and we needed him to laugh or smile we just had to get him to laugh or smile for a fraction of a second and that would play out 40 seconds long and it made this strange wonderful place that i think is kind of unusual under any circumstances and then it also allowed us to make the best of his acting ability yeah and that's the image of the movie right is a shot of dick from one of those heaven scenes yeah 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 this is something that you kind of touched on but i really want to push this for young editors of space and pacing. Talk to me about the value of moments like Dick waiting for the subway train that he never gets on. But that's right after this discussion of him basically telling his daughter, euthanize me when I get to be too much of a pain in the butt. Yeah. So it's this moment where Dick goes down to the bottom of the stairway in the subway and he is just standing there and a train passes him by entirely. It doesn't even stop at the station. It just rumbles by. Full disclosure, the train did stop and we just cut it. It's two shots meshed together. And I just ran it all the way by there because I felt like it could create a moment to contemplate. And it's Dick contemplating his own mortality in that moment. It's Kirsten, who you know is behind the camera at this point in the film. She's a presence there. And it's her watching him there. And on some level, there's her temptation to push him in front of the train. <laughs> I definitely thought and, that as an audience yeah, member. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's that's this part of the joke, but it's also an ambiguous moment that way. And I think that's something that is really valuable in films. I went to film school, and there's a film school approach or like a simplistic approach where everything has its meaning and its place. And I think in my mind, I've replaced that with everything has to be really good. That's my rubric for how to put something in a film. So if, if there's a moment like that where nothing really happens, but it's enchanting or strange or tense or intense, we'll find a spot to put it into the movie. That goes along with really trusting the audience to be with you. I feel like there's a mindset that is easy to take as an editor or director that assumes that the audience is ready to change the channel at the slightest provocation. And I think it's a defensive way of editing or filmmaking. We got to hold on to these, so we have to hold on to them. We have to keep them entertained. We have to hook them. And I think it's important not to lose them. That's for sure. But if you play your hand too close, it doesn't give you access to these more interesting moments. It's not as rich a way of making a movie. Yeah. For me, story-wise, I mean, that scene is pointless. It's definitely got emotional intent to yeah. it, but it's also a pacing moment after an important emotional statement that gives the audience a chance to go, geez, here's a guy that truly knows he's at the end of his life. And it's a great little moment that I loved was there. Oh, thanks. It's nice talking to you about this stuff because you've really found 
several of the things that we do as editors and being able to point them out, which is nice. Oh, thanks. We'll be back in a moment with more of my conversation with Nels Bangerter. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by Evercast. It's hard to beat the ease of sitting shoulder to shoulder with the director cutting together in real time. The Evercast platform gives you that in-person experience no matter where you are. You can securely stream your Avid, Premiere, or any other NLE in 1080p with ultra-low latency. Plus, you can video chat, record, draw on screen, and even make timestamp notes. No more uploading or downloading files, no more installing special hardware or sending notes back and forth. Evercast now offers flexible plans to make it accessible to more creatives. And in the month of March, Art of the Cut listeners can save $50 off their first subscription by heading to evercast.us slash AOTC. That's E-V-E-R-C-A-S-T dot U-S slash A-O-T-C. Today's episode of Art of the Cut is also brought to you by Frame.io. Now that remote workflows are the new normal, filmmakers need a better way to collaborate with their teams and clients. Frame.io keeps editors, directors, producers, and DPs connected no matter where they are in the world. You can shoot in London, cut in New York City, and review in L.A. all at the same time before production even wraps. Frame.io's cloud-based platform helps you work at lightning speed, and their industry-leading security keeps your team and your assets safe. Head over to frame.io to start your free trial today. And now back to my conversation with Nels Bangerter. One of my favorite cuts in the whole movie, I'd be interested to hear your favorite cut in the whole movie, believe it or not, is a very unusual edit, I think, is they're preparing for one of these stunts. He's in a makeup trailer. They're trying to explain how they're going to squirt blood out of his neck. And he steps out of the trailer to do the stunt, and instead of going to the stunt, it cuts to old home movie footage, like a hard cut. And I loved it that we were in another place. Tell me about making that decision. Why did you cut it then? You could have put that home movie footage anywhere. Yeah. So it's almost a continuity cut, too, as much as it's a hard cut to a different place. It's certainly on the movement and the action, but he's sort of being walked down the stairs. Oh, 100 percent. It's not a cut that takes you out. It's a cut that is seamless, but it's a hard edit. It's a yeah. cut. Yeah, and it's a cut across 20-some years, and he's being held as an older man as he walks out of the makeup RV. And then in the shot it cuts too, he's holding the hand of his wife who had Alzheimer's at that time. And it's this conceptual match edit. This is too pretentious, but it's like Lawrence of Arabia, right? The match and the sun. Oh, yeah. The match and the sunrise. Yeah. It's one of these conceptual match cuts. That's in somebody's book, I think. All that jazz, the snapping of the pencil and the heart attack and all kinds of good ones. Yeah. Yeah. So it's one of those. And interesting. I agree with you. I really love it. And it works and it takes you at the right time in the movie to this kind of deep emotional well for him. But it's actually directly from the movie that KJ and I made together before this one, which was called Camera Person. And in that we do a very similar cut to the same home movie footage, a different portion of it. But in a way, it was our little wink to our own work as well. I do that all the time. Recently, I looked back to one of the first movies that I edited, the first feature. In fact, the poster is here. You can see behind me. It's not on the radio. but What does it say? It's called Cine Manifest. The director, Judy Irola, who directed that film, recently passed away. So I was watching the film. And we had a lot of fun editing that. We did a lot of goofy little tricks. And there are meta moments. 
in there that we just loved. And looking back at that, I'm still doing all those same tricks 15 years later. Like what? I use text on screen a lot. That's a favorite thing of mine to do. In Dick Johnson is Dead, we did it with the date for the ambulance footage. There's Mm -hmm. no text on screen. And then suddenly at a key moment, there's a specific date on screen and it means things have gotten very serious. Anyway, the film City Manifest has a lot of that. It has hands reaching from behind the camera into the frame. The cinematographer's hands, her own hands reaching out. That's something that if a shooter ever gives me footage where that happens, it will end up in the rough cut. <laughs> I guarantee it. I just love it. Yeah, go see It's on YouTube, actually. Okay, I'll have to see it. That film is on YouTube? Cine Manifest is on YouTube. I'll put a link. Yeah, it's not my most mature work, but it's a great story, and Judy was an amazing person. And it's a great poster. <laughs> yeah, the, and the poster is really wonderful, too. It's- the funny thing is, I think I told you that I just posted on Facebook that I watched this movie and how much I liked it. And, of course, I've got a lot of Facebook friends who are editors. And somebody said, speaking of camera person, the previous film you were talking about, one of my editor friends, Imbal Lesnar, I don't know if you know who she is. She cut Seduced. Anyhow, she said, I want to make the editor person version of camera person. So Yeah, we've <laughs> joked about that before. I assure everyone it would be far too boring. <laughs> I can attest to that. But for filmmakers, camera person's a story about, in a way, secondary trauma that you are traumatized by the footage you shoot. Of course, that's not the most important thing about it. But I think there's enough in camera person that I think you recognize that there's a tertiary trauma for editors as well watching stuff like this. And I think often documentaries are tragic subjects or even worse, like mass tragedies and I think to some degree that's too much how people see documentaries, but that said, it's a part of what we do. So I think that's there. I talked to Imbal about that because she's edited a bunch of movies that are very dark subject matter. I cut for Oprah Winfrey and some of that stuff was very dark and you're like, oh, I can't. I don't know if I can do another day of this topic. So I totally get that. And I remember in college they showed somebody's assassination attempt where the guys were in a military parade and they Mm -hmm. jumped out of the parade and hosed down the grandstand with the machine gun fire and they played for us the camera person ran towards the gunfire and it was back in the days when you were attached by a umbilical cord to the recording guy and the recording guy who can see everything doesn't budge The camera guy whose eye is riveted to the lens, to the viewfinder, he's watching a movie and he goes straight for it and Mm. the camera gets yanked backwards. Being a camera person and being an editor, there's definitely trauma, secondary or tertiary trauma to that. At the same time, I made a movie about uh, New Yorker cartoonists. It was funny. You know, it's all cartoons and funny. And that can be a painful process. <laughs> Editing is hard. <laughs> so, you know, my partner was so excited about it. When I started the job, she's like, this will be so great. You're just going to be laughing and laughing all day. And I'm like, no, no. <laughs> Editing is hard. You cry even if it's a funny movie. What about this movie? I'm dealing with issues with my father wow. today. And this mm-hmm. movie affected me very deeply because I saw my dad in Dick very strongly. Mm-hmm. What about you? How did this affect you? Yeah, there's no good time to deal with 
the subject of death. It's always on somebody's doorstep. And I think that's one of the interesting things about this film is how many people it's caught at exactly the time that it was helpful for them or really amazing for them. Or there a couple of my friends haven't watched it yet because they're in a situation maybe like yours, Steve, where it's just too on the nose. And yeah, it's something that is... I don't know what else we would do. That said, I may have been in a slightly lucky place with this where my dad passed away five years ago and that gave me enough time to deal with that. So I wasn't thinking about that and my mom's in pretty good health. So I wasn't thinking about her. And psychically, I think I escaped this one too much. But I always think of it in two ways. This is about losing a parent. And then you could also be somebody in their 70s or something and start to think it's about losing your memory and losing your ability to drive and your connection with your kids and you can experience this as somebody who is themselves mortal as well and i think that's an interesting thing that i'll come back and look at hopefully in many decades yeah can you for the purpose of explaining what got left in the movie some things that might have gotten cut out i was thinking there's a nice cut from him being in his house for the last time to him arriving in New York City, the moving van. Mm -hmm. I think that's an edit. It's basically leaving the house to getting to the house. Was there travel? Was there more stuff that you could have cut a scene with in between those two? There was an airplane scene, in fact, now that you bring it up, where he gets on the airplane and kind of scrambles down the aisle and gets to his seat. And Kristen's filming him the whole time, which is this great bustling camera shot as you go all the way to the back of the airplane. And he sits down and we had a, a really interesting scene where, and this happened in real life, he looked out the window and he said, as they were taking off, he said, I think I see some smoke out there. What is that? He was talking about some smoke on the horizon. There was a garbage fire in the distance of the airport. But I used that line and cut the scene where he says it once the plane's in the air and then we had the plane crash and that was a Dick Johnson death. When the plane crashed and then we cut to, oh, he arrives at the apartment, he's fine. That was a joke death. But that was one that we ended up feeling like the sort of constructedness of that death wasn't helping us that much. It, it, it never felt fully working. And we were leaning away from every death, every scene approach anyway at that time. But with the doc, there's always tons of stuff that you leave on the floor. I think the hardest thing to do in a way is not to get rid of things. I'm always just looking for ways to make sure that we use the very best stuff that we had. So if there's a scene in this, I touched on earlier with the train, but if there's a scene that's amazing, even if it's not quite on point, I'll try hard to keep it in. The saying you've got to, is it kill your babies or throw mm -hmm, out the babies? Yeah. I really disagree with that in a way. I'm a baby saver. I want to find a way to make those amazing scenes work. And I think, of course, there's always something that you let go of because it's wrong. But I think if you can string together 24 amazing scenes, you've got a movie and all you have to do is string them together. So I'm much more in favor of helping the audience make a leap to get a scene in than taking something out. Yeah. Something else I wanted to talk to you about was another kind of emotional connection that I just thought of, which is the scene of him leaving his house and packing up the house really centers around an urn with his wife's ashes in it. And then the next scene, 
is mm. him deciding where that's going to go in his new house. So there's that nice emotional through line of those two scenes. Yeah, yeah. And that is something that you discover when you do take scenes out is that you get these things that connect from one side and the other. And yeah, that connection wouldn't have been as strong if we, for example, kept the airplane scene in. Yeah. So that's why you kill your babies. Well, unless the airplane yeah, scene yeah, wasn't yeah. one of your babies. It was, yeah. I don't want to draw that analogy out further. I'm trying to okay. think what it was. I, I, An ugly stepchild. There yeah. you go. And then I want to talk about this little bit of nonlinear storytelling of the Halloween scene. Because you start out and showing Halloween, and then you're kind of in this weird place, which you know is a set, and the audience is kind of left to wonder what the heck's going on, and then it's explained why that scene is in there. Because you could have told it chronologically, mm -hmm. this happened, and then this happened, and so now we do this scene. It wouldn't have worked, but talk to me about that Halloween scene. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the exact order of it. So you see him going around like in the streets of New York trying to get yeah. candy. Dick's there. He's obviously not getting candy, but the kids are. And then it goes to the set where he's lost and scared. And then it mm -hmm. comes back to a car scene where it sounded like they dropped him off at somebody's house because it was cold and he was tired. And then he thought he was left behind, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly right. So for one, we called that the hell sequence. It was counterpart in a way to the heaven sequence, but it wasn't in slow motion. And it was in this sort of hellish, but not fully hell apartment. And yeah, you said exactly what happened there, which I think you're also right to point out is it's challenging the audience to understand what happens. It's asking them to put something together and okay, yeah, yeah, I think I get it. It was left alone in the apartment while the kids went trick-or-treating and he didn't understand where he was and was deeply upset by that and we had cut that scene that halloween scene without the apartment set where he would exist in a kind of panic and it wasn't amazing it kind of worked there was the reality of the situation was that he'd gone through a really terrible moment but that wasn't on film that was when he was off by himself and kirsten the director was taking her kids around on halloween so that was sort of a recreate moment where we recreate the time in that apartment. But you don't know that it's a recreation when you're in the apartment. Right. You're with him in that moment. And I think that's a storytelling question that you face over and over as an editor is, do you explain what's going on first or do you explain later or do you try to analyze it later or draw some emotional point from it later or do you do that first? And I think there's rules of thumb that way, but... I think every situation you feel it out as it comes. Yeah. Is there stuff in the film that you want to talk about? I mean, we had a lot of fun with After Effects in the film, and it was something I was teaching myself as we were doing it. It started out with when Dick died in these stunts, he was never perfect at lying still, which I don't know if anybody is, but I, of course, realized that it's so easy, and I knew this before, but you could just freeze frame him and he'd be great. So we did that a little bit in After Effects, and then you had a little camera wiggled. As an editor, you're very self-conscious of the freeze frame, so you want to sell it. So you add some camera wiggle back in, that makes it look better, and then learn something else. And we ended up doing a few really fun After Effects tricks or visual effects tricks that actually were really playful ways to get at exposition. We had the airplane flying by with the flag trailing to explain. Oh, I was going to ask about that. That's After Effects. That's after effects. Of so, course it is, but I'm so sad. 
It's VFX. I did a version of it myself with just a tiny airplane and a little flag. And uh, put it So in and... explain to everybody what you're talking about. Okay. So when Kirsten moves to New York, she has a very unusual living situation with her family. Maybe it's less unusual these days, but she lives next door to her kids, two dads, and they all co-parent the two kids. And so we decided to explain that by having it this long explanation spelled out on a banner that's being pulled by an airplane that flies from behind the building. And so it's too long to be a real airplane banner, but that's kind of the joke because it keeps going and going. And I did it that way in After Effects and showed the director and the producers and everybody's like, this is great. This looks perfect. And of course I was like, no, it's terrible. It looks really bad. So we had our visual effects people do a A plus Hollywood job on it. But even they looked at it and they're like, I think we could just let this be, you know, it's such a simple effect that it just worked. Of course, Netflix, you deliver everything in 4K. And so probably at 4K, it would have been especially dumb, but still <laughs> fine too. So we did that and we did this similar trick with this book that he's playing with. The title of the book tells you about his heart attack. That's the one where it says Dick ate a piece of cake and had a heart attack. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. The next day is gold embossed on a book cover. Oh, that's um, an after effect shot, huh? We tried to do it in After Effects, and then we ended up reshooting. We shot the insert later for that. <laughs> There's one of him where he falls asleep in his favorite chair in his bedroom, and then I'm sure you guys just literally lifted him up into the ceiling. Yeah, that was actually shot on a green screen room, so we <laughs> did a full crazy shoot for that to get the angles all right. But I don't think we could have built the lift for that, but that's a fun one. And then the one where the words are spelled in his tomato soup as well. It turns into alphabet soup and it says one year later in his soup. So we were just playing with ways that were really fun as a doc editor. It's nice to take a couple hours in the afternoon off of thinking really hard and just watch a YouTube tutorial and teach yourself how to track a movement in a scene to try to get something to look exactly right. I had a great time with that. And another thing that I'm interested in since you worked so collaboratively with her and mm -hmm. over the course of the shooting of a long period, did yeah. you get to points where you would say, I think we need this here. Could you go shoot? Or what do you think of shooting this? Yeah, I mean, all the time. Kirsten and I have worked really closely and enjoyably together on a movie before this. So we had a very trusting, collaborative relationship where nobody was worried about annoying anybody with any <laughs> impertinent requests. So I'd say, oh, let's get this scene. And, and sometimes we wouldn't bother because it wasn't that good an idea. Sometimes I thought it was a good idea and we tried it and it was a terrible idea. And other times it worked. We had one scene when Dick goes to visit Lolita, his girlfriend from college or his crush from college. We had that scene end with Dick being bitten by a rattlesnake in their yards. The producers were ordering dead rattlesnakes online and we had this elaborate thing and I was like, it's gonna work, it's gonna work. Uh, and then there's a version of it that was very funny, but it was so stupid that we cut it. So that was something I pushed for hard. And then of course I agree completely, it didn't belong. But yeah, KJ, she's such a great person to work with. She's so generous to every single person on the crew, absolutely to a T. And you kind of see that in the film even, but especially working with her as an editor and with a lot of directors I work with, there's a lot to be gained from trust. And I work remotely a lot, which means that directors are just sending me material and I'll be sending them something back, whether it's every day or a couple times a week or something. 
but it's a way of working that is allowing everybody to be doing their best work at their job. You know, it's a way of entrusting everybody to knock it out of the park. And I feel like that's one of Kirsten's big strengths. Let's talk a little bit about the collaboration to kind of wrap things up. Tell me what she was saying, how you were collaborating with her, what that looks like. Was it all remote? Yeah, so I'm in Oakland, California, and Kirsten lives in New York, and we've worked this way before, but the production sends footage to me either in the mail or we do it over Dropbox, and I'll start editing it. And we're on the same page sort of with respect to how the story's working, and so I'll usually be able to make something work out of whatever comes in. And then I always send the scenes right over to the director, Dropbox them over, and, and they look, and then we talk them over and use the stuff, don't use it, change it. It can go anywhere from there. But usually for me, it's not a situation where the director's in the edit room helping make decisions on shots or cuts. That's sort of usually in my purview. But then typically during these movies, Kirsten will come out here for a week or so and often we'll have the director stay in our guest bedroom and do a week here and there of the intensive, really specific editing. So if there's that shot that the director's always hated, that's when we find the replacement for that or where there's an edit that's not quite working or where we hammer out a big new pass at note carding all the scenes and trying a big new order. That's a time that it helps to be in person. But yeah, there's a lot of trust and a, and a lot of nice space to work with when we work this way. I've been working remotely for roughly at least 10 years, 90% remote. I just cut a documentary the same way. The director's not there. You cut a scene, you send them on the scene. Yeah, and it can work great if it happens to work great. I've talked to directors and I've gotten the sense that they're really hands-on. And in those cases, I'm kind of like, this might not be the best way to do things. You might be better off finding somebody in your own city. We find that as an agreement. But yeah, I love getting on the phone with people and talking over things. It's really a nice way to interact in a way. It sounds like you cut things down as you were going and there was space during the process. But did you ever have a long cut of the movie and how long was it? And then how did you get it paired to where it is now? Yeah. So that's a way that I don't usually go. I try to aim for something under two hours to start with. I just aim for a movie. I want it to play like a movie. And so what that means is that oftentimes there are a few scenes on the first edit that I just don't even cut or I'll cut the scene and not put it in to the timeline. And then later over the course of the edit, which are long on independent documentaries, you're swapping scenes in and out. You're adding things and then taking something else out in order to work the stories different ways. So in a way there was no four hour cut. You know, I hear about four hour and 10 hour cuts and I'm like, it's important to familiarize yourself with the footage. And I end up cutting that much stuff, but I never put it all in the timeline once because I don't find that a very helpful way to process it. If it's too long, you can't tell what parts are good and what parts are bad. It's all bad at that length. Yeah, I understand. I agree. Uh, although I did that interview with the Apollo 11 editor th that had the 24-hour edit. So, oh, Todd Miller, is that right? <laughs> yeah, Todd, Todd Miller had a 24-hour cut of that film. Well, that's an amazing film, and I could see that 24-hour cut being in a theater in a way. <laughs> or not in a theater, in a museum. But, yeah, that's not how I would have done it. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, you said that you tried not to have 
long cuts at the beginning of the interview. Yeah. But I was yeah. wondering whether it was three hours instead of two or whatever it was. I think people always want documentaries to be short. There are a lot of reasons for that. Some I agree with, some I don't agree with. But if a cut ended up being two and a half hours, I'd be like, okay, I can deal with that because there are movies that are two and a half hours long. Now there are movies that are four hours long, right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think I just aim for something that plays with a sense of momentum. Yeah, this definitely does. Thank you so uh, thank much you. for a great conversation. I really appreciate everything you've contributed to this as an editor and as a conversationalist for our conversation. Yeah, really nice talking to you, Steve. And thanks for getting in touch. Thanks for watching the movie. I hope things go well with your dad. I, that is a you know, really difficult and real situation. But the film seems to help some people who, you know, at least find a way to think about it. Um, yeah. I was trying to figure so, out whether I wanted my parents yeah. to see this because my dad's just coming home from the hospital today. I'm like, I don't think they could do it. Yeah, and we're okay with that. I mean, although we've had people who watch it in situations that I wouldn't watch it right in the middle of these intense family moments, and they've enjoyed it too, I think. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Thanks, Nels. Great talking to you. Okay. That's it for Out of the Cup this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Nels Bangerter. Also, thanks to Jake Gum for editing today's podcast using Adobe Audition. And thanks to our sponsors for making this podcast possible, Evercast and Frame.io. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend.